one of the... Uh, one of the things I ran across in preparing for this message this week was a story by a guy named Lee Strobel. Lee is a former atheist, uh, turned pastor, and now a professor. And he writes about the time when he was still working for a newspaper in Chicago. He says, at the end of a long day at the newspaper where I was an editor, I was packing up to leave when I felt the unmistakable gentle nudging of the Holy Spirit. I sensed God leading me to go into the business office and invite my atheist friend to come with me to an Easter service at my church. The impression, he says, was so strong that I figured something dramatic was about to happen. I walked into the office. The place appeared empty except for my friend who was sitting alone at his desk. Perfect. I reminded him that Easter was coming and asked if he would come to church with Leslie and me. He turned me down cold. I asked if he was interested in spiritual matters, and he emphatically said no. I asked if he had any questions about God, and again he said no. I explained why the resurrection was so important, but he wasn't interested. With all my evangelistic overtures being instantly shut down, I began to feel embarrassed. If God really had prodded me to talk with him, then why was he so uninterested? Finally, I stammered as I backed out of the office, well, um, if you've ever got any questions, uh, I, I guess you know where my desk is. What, he says, was that all about? I couldn't understand why he was so resistant. He says, skip, skip ahead a few years. Um, he says, uh, by, the time, by this time I was a teaching pastor at a church in suburban Chicago. After I spoke one Sunday, a middle-aged man walked up, shook my hand, and said, I just want to thank you for the spiritual influence you've had in my life. That's very nice, Lee said, but, but who are you? He said, well, let me tell you my story. A few years ago, I lost my job, and I didn't have any money, and I was afraid I was going to lose my house. So I called a friend of mine who runs a newspaper and said, do you have any work available for me? He asked me, can you tile floors? Well, I had tiled my bathroom floor once, so I said, sure. And he told me, we need some tiling done at the newspaper. If you can do that, we can pay you. So one day, shortly before Easter, I was on my hands and knees behind a desk in the business office of the newspaper, fixing some tiles. When you walked into the room, I don't even think you saw me. You started talking about God and Jesus and Easter to some guy, and he wasn't interested at all. But I was crouching there listening, and my heart was beating fast, and I started thinking, I need God. I need to go to church. So as soon as you left, I called my wife, and I said, we're going to church this Easter. And she said, you're kidding. I said, no, we are. And we ended up going to your church that Easter, and my wife, my teenage son, and I all came to faith in Christ, and I just wanted to thank you. Lee says, I was dumbstruck. He says, this is, this is a, a new form of outreach, ricochet evangelism. <laughs> he says, where the gospel bounces off a hard heart and zips around the room until it hits a heart that's more receptive. Who could have foreseen that except the amazing God of grace? You hear stories like that, and it reminds us that God spreads the gospel, that God directs 
the gospel unexpectedly and in equally surprising ways, sometimes costly ways, he even uses people like you and me as part of that plan. Today, I want us to look at Acts 15 again, the passage we read last week, the back end, starting in verse 36 and following. We're going to see this principle of God directing and spreading the gospel playing out. So while you're finding your way there, let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll walk through this together. God, strengthen our faith by your word. Increase our faith in the work of your spirit to lead and guide us, to strengthen us, to even use us. And I pray that your word um, and even mine would serve that purpose by the work of your spirit now. Uh, Father, this we ask in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. All right. Well, today we're going to consider three brief accounts of the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts that we're studying. Um, the first of these stories is about the gospel threatened. And when I talk about gospel, that, that's a word that just means good news, and it's the good news about Jesus' loving sacrificial death for our sins and his resurrection and victory over death on the third day. And so when we talk about the gospel being threatened, it's that gospel message. Let's look at that first story starting in verse 36. So after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, they were missionary buddies on a journey, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So Paul hatches a plan with his friend Barnabas to start their second missionary journey by visiting the churches that they had started on the first journey. And everybody seems on board with this until Barnabas makes this suggestion. Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, his cousin. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them. Some of your Bibles read, deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them in the work. So Barnabas wants to take along his cousin John. Paul isn't on board with that at all. And the incident they're talking about, about John Mark's desertion, happened back a couple pages earlier in your Bible in Acts 13, where at the beginning of their first missionary journey, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, this is John Mark, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. And this leaving that Luke describes so matter-of-factly in Acts 13 was not a happy departure, it seems. In Paul's eyes, at least, it felt something like desertion. So Barnabas, maybe it's because he's family, and maybe because he's Barnabas, the encourager, he's known for his encouragement, he thinks John Mark deserves a second chance. Paul, maybe because he's mindful of the, of the even greater suffering and hardship that's going to await them, feels that he does not. He says, no way. Their disagreement over this is so sharp that they part ways. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And Barnabas took Mark, John Mark, with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Okay? So the team breaks up. Does that surprise you? That you have the great missionary apostle Paul and the great encourager, Paul's mentor in a sense, Barnabas, and they come to such a disagreement that their team breaks up? 
Does that surprise you? Um, in a way, it's shocking. But in a way, it's not. Um, especially when you're mindful of things that Christians do, like what Stephen Rowland cited in an article he wrote about church splits in the little town of Centerville, Georgia, and he swears this is the truth, okay? Um, he says, Centerville, Georgia has a population around 5,000 people. It all started with one original Presbyterian church that had an internal conflict around 1911 over whether to take up the offering before or after the sermon. The splitting off church became the Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church. Just four years later, another church split occurred over whether to have flowers in the sanctuary or not. The church that split off from that was renamed Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church of Centerville. A total of seven more splits happened between 1915 and 1929 over various issues. And by 1931, the latest edition of the church was called Third Westminster Trinity Covenant Presbyterian Reformed Church of Centerville. More church splits happened between 31 and, and 1975 over the conservative liberal bifurcation within that domination. Since 1975, a few more church splits over various issues has brought the total number of church splits in that one town for that one denomination to 48. Apparently some kind of record, he says. The last one was over whether or not it was a violation of the Sabbath day to check your email on your personal computer. The church split over that issue. Some folks left the 2nd Street, 1st, 9th, Westminster Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church and renamed their new church the Presbyterian Totally Reformed Covenantal Westminsterian <laughs> Sabbatarian Regulative Credo Communionist Amillennial Presuppositional Church of Centerville. He says in his article, I am not making this up, folks. A teaching elder named Paul Davis in the P-T-R-C-W-S-R-C-C-A-P-C church was quoted as saying, I think we finally got it right now. We have a church with 100% doctrinal purity and we're up to six people on Sundays. Okay? You can tell what's coming, right? It's interesting, according to the Church Conflict Forum, only about 2% of church conflicts related to church splits were over doctrinal issues. 98% were over interpersonal issues, 98%. So, no, I'm not, I'm not surprised. I'm saddened, but I'm not surprised. Um, you know, team dynamics on missionary teams to this day, by some accounts, are one of the top two contributing factors to missionaries returning from the field in our day. This plagues us still. And yet, and this is the amazing thing I want you to see as this story unfolds, God continues, by His grace, continues to use both Paul and Barnabas and their separate teams to spread the gospel and strengthen the churches. Um, in verse 40, it says, Paul, okay, Barnabas had taken John Mark and gone to Cyprus to visit some of the churches they planted. Paul chose a guy named Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So this new team, and I'm assuming both of these teams, were used by God to strengthen churches throughout the region. 
there's a song. Uh, it, it's one of my favorite, favorite hymn lyrics. Um, it goes like this. Okay, relax. Lyric, not tune. It goes like this. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Okay. Now, the hymn writer is thinking about our salvation, but it's bigger than that. It's God's grace that when we mess up and fall into sin, even breaking relationships with one another, He and His mercy will still find us useful. Now, it's easy for us to think, well, it all turned out okay. So I guess this whole reconciling thing isn't as important as we thought it was because God has our backs and he just does a workaround. So it's really not that important that I reconcile with sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so that I'm not on speaking terms with. I don't think that's the point of the story. And you pick up on why that's not the point. When you look at the second story right next to it that we want to look at, it's about the gospel protected. And it starts in verse 1 of chapter 16. Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observance, the decision, uh, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. We read about that last week. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So from now on, for the rest of the book of the Acts, um, the focus is really on Paul and his missionary team. Okay? At this point, he and Silas. Now, he starts this journey, they, they go back up to Antioch, They're, they leave from Antioch, and they come over to Derby, Lystra, Iconium in this area. That's what we're reading about right now. Now, you remember Lystra from a couple weeks ago when Jeff Doyle taught us? It was a place where Paul was stoned, drug out of the city, left for dead. Where's Paul going back? You got to love this. He's going back to Lystra and Iconium to check on the believers there. Now, they find a believer in Lystra, the city that stones apostles and followers of Jesus. They find a disciple there of good reputation, Timothy. You got a good reputation in Lystra, that means something, okay? You're a faithful guy. And where John Mark had abandoned Paul, now he's got a guy who he doesn't think is going to abandon him. That's Timothy, and he's taken him along on the journey. Now, it's interesting, in verse 4 of our passage... Um, it says that they delivered to them, all the churches they visited, for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. This Jerusalem council we looked at earlier in Acts 15 last week. And you remember they made two decisions. One was, don't you dare add circumcision to the gospel. Okay? The gospel is by grace through faith alone. Don't add anything, even as sacred as circumcision, to it, okay? You remember um, Peter put it really beautifully. 
Peter stood up and said, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, period. That's it. Grace alone. So, you're thinking about that, right? Don't you dare add circumcision to the gospel. Paul leaves town, goes on a journey, supposed to tell these decrees, right? What's the first thing he does? Circumcise Timothy. All right. (laughs) What is going on here? I think it's helpful to remember that the, the decrees in Jerusalem, there were two parts, right? Don't add anything to the gospel, but... Here's a list of four things you need to do to separate yourself from past idol worship and to preserve fellowship with Jewish believers. Okay? You remember that? There was a second part of it. And I think what Paul is doing with Timothy is is really a similar kind of thing, except the focus is not giving an offense to unbelieving Jews where they would stumble over it and miss the gospel. Daryl Bach uh, kind of explains it in his commentary this way. He says, if Paul's going to work in the synagogue, circumcision will ensure Timothy's credibility. Mixed marriages were forbidden in Judaism, but when they occurred, children were still to be raised as Jews. A later text makes the mother's nationality determinative for the children. An uncircumcised son of a Jewish mother, that's Timothy, was regarded in Judaism as an apostate Jew, a violator of the covenant. So he says what what is seen here is Paul's cultural sensitivity. Instead of making Timothy a sideshow to the gospel in terms of whether he was really a Jew or not, Paul permitted circumcision so that the gospel would remain the main topic. So this was Paul's Paul's whole philosophy of ministry, really. He's going to write about it later when he wrote to the church in Corinth. He says, give no offense to the Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So as a result of Paul's teaching and his ministry, Timothy voluntarily submits to circumcision for the progress of the gospel. Okay? Guys. New Bible hero, Timothy, submits without local anesthetic to circumcision for the progress of the gospel. This is, this is a man serious about being useful to God, okay? This is a yowza, okay? This is a painful sacrifice, um, literally. Now, now think about this with me. Um, Timothy could be considered Paul's intern, right? So, Northwake interns. Um, from time to time, we hear whining about Jeff's reading list and the projects you have to do and that long Monday meeting. Guys, guys, stop whining, okay? <laughs> Remember Timothy, stop whining, all right? This is, uh, Timothy's, Timothy's the man here. He's laying down his rights in order that he will not be a hindrance to people hearing and welcoming the good news about Jesus. Okay. It's the only reason he did it. He didn't want to be a stumbling block. 
Um, G.K. Chesterton said something really wise. He said, to have a right to do a thing is not at all the same as to be right in doing it. And so, when I go to visit our missionaries in India and they're working with Hindus, they're not going out for burgers, okay? They can. They don't. They lay down that right because it would be offensive. It would raise a, a barrier to the gospel for the Hindus they're trying to reach. In some of our cities there and other places around the world, our people are working with Muslims. They don't go out and eat pork chops. Okay? It would be a hindrance. They can. There's nothing wrong with that. But it would be a hindrance to the gospel. So they lay down that right. Whatever it takes. This is the, this is the motto. Whatever it takes to protect the gospel, that we will do. We'll give up beef, we'll give up pork, we'll get circumcised with no anesthetic, whatever it takes to protect the gospel. Okay. So let's go back now to that first story and the relational discord between Paul and Barnabas. Imagine that you're the Apostle Paul. Okay. Hang with me, it gets crazier. You come into my office seeking pastoral counseling about this rift between you and your friend Barnabas. Okay? And so, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, dude, can I get a selfie? You're the Apostle Paul. And then I'm going to say, uh, Paul, have you ever read this? And I'm going to say, it says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Paul, have you read this? And you're going to say to me, I'm Paul. I wrote that. Okay? Well, I'd say, okay, well, how about this that Jesus said? If you are offering your gift at the altar and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Or how about this? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another by this. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, Jesus says, I in them, Father, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And Paul, have you ever read John's writings? Beloved, he says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. See, I'd say, Paul, your worship, the acceptability of your worship depends on you being reconciled to Barnabas. Your mission depends upon being reconciled to him. If people see God, depends on it. If they know that Jesus was truly sent by the Father, depends on it. If they know that you are truly Jesus' disciples, all this depends upon how we love and forgive and are one with one another. It all rides on that. And I'd say, Paul, this is a big deal. It's a really big deal. 
Jesus talked about it. John wrote about it. Paul, you wrote about it. You need to reconcile with Barnabas because the gospel is at stake. Reconcile with Barnabas and with John Mark for that matter. You should do whatever it takes. And then I get a selfie. And then, and then we go on from there. The incredible thing about that conversation is Paul listened to me. In a, in a sense, you know. He followed this advice as the Spirit brought it to him. Because it looks like the little bit of evidence we have about Paul and Barnabas later in the New Testament, it looks like they reconciled. Uh, there's only one really clear reference to those two together. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote a letter. Chapter 9, he says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? He's in an, a debate about his rights as an apostle. As do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And here we see him putting Barnabas in with the leaders, the brothers of the Lord, the leaders of the church. It's even possible that they were working together again here as he talks about Barnabas and I refraining from working for a living. Um, even clearer comments are made about Paul's reconciliation with John Mark. Says in, he writes in Colossians later on, he'll say, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if John Mark comes to you, welcome him. Okay. Affirming John Mark, possibly even being sent by Paul. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, Luke alone is with me. Get John Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Okay. Clearly, they reconciled. They may even have traveled and worked together again. That was clearly Paul's intent. So how do these two, um, two stories connect uh, between the gospel imperiled and the gospel protected? Well, on the one hand, God is sovereign over the gospel, and even our sin cannot ultimately derail its spread. Okay. But that doesn't mean that we can be cavalier about our sin and think, you know, God's got my back. If I sin, if I don't reconcile, if I'm not speaking to them, he'll just overrule it and everything will be okay in the end. I think the Apostle Paul would say, may it never be. Okay. If that were the case, Paul would never have had Timothy circumcised. Jesus would not have taught that his divine mission was validated in the eyes of onlookers by the way we love one another. Okay. Your relationships matter. For the, for the sake of the reputation of Jesus, you must be reconciled with one another. There's a theologian, um, if, if you're expecting, you're looking for the name of your next born son, here you go, Miroslav Volf. <clears throat> I can just see Miroslav Jackson one of these days or something like that. He writes uh, that when he is one year old, his five-year-old brother, Daniel, who was being watched by his aunt named um, Milica, slipped through the large gate in the courtyard where we had an apartment. He went to the nearby small military base just two blocks away to play with his soldiers. 
Um, on earlier walks to the neighborhood, he had found some friends there, soldiers in training, bored, and in need of diversion, even if it came from an energetic five-year-old. He writes, on that fateful day in 1957, one of them put him on a horse-drawn bread wagon, and as they were passing through the gate on a bumpy cobblestone road, Daniel leaned sideways, and his head got stuck between the post and the wagon, and the horses kept going, and he died on the way to the hospital. A son lost to parents who adored him and an older brother that I would never know. Aunt Milica should have watched him, but she didn't. She let him slip out. She didn't look for him, and he was killed. But, he says, my parents never told me that she was partly responsible because they forgave her. He says, the pain of that terrible loss still lingers on, but bitterness and resentment against those responsible are gone. He says, it was healed at the foot of the cross as my mother gazed on the son who was killed and reflected about the father who forgave. Aunt Milica was forgiven. And there was no more talk of her guilt, not even talk of her having been guilty. As far as I was concerned, he says, she was innocent. And that's how we protect the gospel. Okay. We love one another. We forgive one another. We are reconciled. The same Paul who had this temporarily irreconcilable difference with his friend Barnabas would one day write these words to us. Be imitators of God, he says, as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay. And, so, and so we must. We must do whatever it takes to protect the gospel and the reputation of our Savior Jesus, even if we have to give up the right of being right. Whatever it takes that we might be reconciled. One final story uh, that we'll look at today, it's about the gospel directed. And it starts in verse 6 of chapter 16. Um, Paul and his companions, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul is on this journey, right? He has left these cities. And he's traveling over this way, and he wants to go down to Asia, and the Spirit forbids him. So plan B is to go up into Bithynia, and the Spirit stops him. Now, why would the Spirit stop a good thing like Paul wanting to travel to Asia and share the gospel? Why would that happen? And honestly, there's a level at which we don't know why in the way that we wish we did know. But it seems to me that the Spirit is positioning Paul to respond to the Spirit's one yes in this passage that comes to him through the vision of the man in Macedonia, saying, please 
come and help us. And next week, we'll look at what begins to happen in Macedonia as people's lives are transformed by the gospel as Paul takes it there by the Spirit's yes. It is, in a sense here, kind of a gospel ricochet, or at least it's a gospel redirect. And all we can really say is that this is God's prerogative. He is the Lord of the harvest. And Paul, as a result of that, is radically obedient. He's exemplary for us. Where God sends him, he will go. Okay? Even if he had plans, good, wise plans to go do elsewhere. If God says go, Paul goes. And so we have missionaries sent from our church who've left family and friends here because they believe God and our church has confirmed that God wants them there that God is saying yes there. And that leading comes in different ways for different people. We don't know how it came to Paul. It may have just been circumstantial. And he just says the Lord wouldn't allow us to get there by his sovereign arranging of our travel. It could have been internal prompting. It could have been a vision like what we saw here often in the New Testament. Most often it comes by the guidance of the local church that calls and sends missionaries or their representative. You see this in Paul as he acts as an agent of the church at Antioch. He's always redirecting people to come and join him in the work or sending people out. That verse in 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get John Mark, bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. So John Mark doesn't have a vision. He doesn't have a prompting. He has a worker, a leader in the church calling him to come and be with him. But this is why Paul prayed in um, Colossians and elsewhere, for open doors for the gospel because God opens doors. And then he'd pray for boldness to walk through those doors and speak of Jesus. Now, hopefully your small group's doing this little book. Does that look familiar to you guys? You guys are doing that or you're, or you're about to do it in your small group. It's called a pep talk. Rob Craig, our outreach pastor, put it together for us. And part of that exercise is attempting to discern what doors is God opening for you? Where is the Spirit saying yes for you to speak of the love of Christ with people that you know and meet day to day? Who is God prompting you, calling you, guiding you to speak of Christ with? See, the same Holy Spirit that guided Paul indwells us. And so in this little book, there's a thing that Rob's developed called 111. Are you there yet in the book? Where every day at 1 o'clock, you take one minute and you pray for the one person that God has most put on your heart to have an opportunity to speak of Christ to them. One person, one minute at 1 o'clock. You stop whatever you're doing and you pray. Now Rob gives you flexibility if you want to run it up to 12, 12, 12. He lets you do that. Um, but who is God saying is your one? Who's the person that your heart is heavy for because they don't know Christ yet? And you would be willing, if God would open the door, you would tell him. Have you, like Paul, said yes to that? Are you steadfast in that? Or are you waffling? Are you thinking, well... Maybe that really wasn't a prompting from God after all, since I didn't get an open door right away. 
I want to encourage you as we close our service, we'll close it in song as we uh, love to do here. And during that song, if, if there's someone that's on your heart and you are praying for an open door, that you might come with a friend or one of our leaders that's down here and pray for them. Pray that God would open the door and that he would give you boldness to walk lovingly through it when he opens it. 